Hi everyone, I'm Ben. And I'm Yeo. Welcome to Sustainable Energy Asia podcast. Today, we're receiving Putra Adiguna, Energy Technology Lead at Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, or AIFA, a think tank, to discuss about Indonesia's nickel and EV battery industry and the electrification of Indonesia's roads. Yes, very happy to have Putra on the show to cover nickel, battery, and EV development in Indonesia. To me, they are very important topics, but unfortunately not so much covered in the media. Putra was extremely insightful on a broad range of subjects. My main takeaway is that despite the current narrative around nickel downstreaming in Indonesia, only one quarter of EV use a nickel in the battery chemistry, mainly due to more cost-competitive LFP chemistry alternative. Yes, it was also interesting to hear about the role of Japanese car makers in Indonesia and how their inability to lead the global EV market development is now impacting the Indonesia's road electrification story. As always, grateful if you could take the time to read and comment on the show. It helps listeners to find us. Thanks. Salamat datang di Sustainable Energy Asia podcast, Bapak Putra. Uh, very pleased to have you on the show to speak about Indonesia nickel and battery industry and the electrification of Indonesian's road. First of all, could you just introduce yourself and your career path before joining the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis? Good morning. Thank you for having me. My name is Putra. I'm an energy technology lead for the AIFA. Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. I'm based in Indonesia. Prior to joining AIFA, I spent almost one and a half decades across the energy sectors, from oil, gas, geothermals, as well, and various other policies. And then I joined AIFA as a public think tank. Since you mentioned AIFA, we are also very interested in this organization. Could you please introduce about the organization goal and the think tank's recent accomplishments? Sure. So AIFA is, a, is an independent public interest think tank. We're focusing on the energy transitions, on the economics and financial side of it, because we see that there is a lot of angle to cover it on that side. It's based out of the US. We have about, about 10 to 15 people based in Asia, but it's pretty much scattered all over the world. We cover so many topics you know, from power sector, coal, oil and gas, electric vehicles as well. Recently, within the last, I think, given the last four weeks, I guess, in Asia, we released a few papers about the changing LNG demand in Asia, some concerns on the credit rating agencies and climate risk, as well as some talks about taxonomy and investments. So today we'll start first with Indonesia's nickel and EV battery push, and then we move on to the electrification on Indonesian road. So in 2014, Indonesian government has imposed this export ban of unprocessed metals. Essentially, this ban has forced foreign companies to invest in Indonesia's smelters to keep hold of the resources of nickel. So could you explain Indonesia's role in this global nickel production landscape and the reason for the government to impose its export ban and essentially the practical steps government has taken to foster the industry downstreaming? So Indonesia has had a long history of mining. Right. I mean, we are the world's largest coal exporter. We had quite a significant corporate sources as well. And when the policy went out in the 2010s and the 2014s, as you mentioned, is that the intent was that to make sure that there is a downstreaming, that's the term we like to call it, downstreaming of the nickel resources. So instead of exporting the raw ore and getting it processed in other countries, so there's that intent 
to get the overseas investment to invest in Indonesia on the processing side. Now, the degree to which the investment will take place definitely will take some stage, but that was the intention. When we talk about the global nickel resources, Indonesia comprises about anywhere between 40 to 50% of the global production. So it's by a significant margin, a leader in world nickel resources. But initially, most of these are pretty much exported in a raw form. And that was when the government policies start to step in to get the investments on the ground. Now, there are some concerns whether the investments is optimal or not, because what we did was practically banning the export of the ore. Some people would prefer to do it on a, for example, an export levy basis, you know, putting some kind of a balancing point. But what we did was pretty much shut the door, stop the exports, and let's see who's going to invest. So that's what took place. So in the last five to seven years, there's a lot of investment coming in on the mining side as well, processing and so forth. At the moment, the products is still quite limited, but it did change from the raw ore material into becoming an intermediary product of various forms. And a lot of these originate really from the Chinese investments and the improvement in technology that came along within the last decade, because that was actually a key changing factor because the world was previously relying on nickel for stainless steel, but then there's the new trend about the role of nickel toward the battery sector. That's really interesting. If we just focus on the different industrial application for nickel, you mentioned that it is used for stainless steel and also for the production of e-battery. Could you just break it down a little bit further for us just to understand what are the different processes around those two applications? If we pull up a bit further behind is that globally, the stainless steel demand for nickel is still the dominant factor. I think about 70% is still directed for stainless steel production. So right now we're still at that 10% mark for the battery use from nickel, but this is planned to be growing exponentially higher in the next two decades. Now, in terms of processing, I think it's worthwhile to understand first is that the type of resource that exists in countries like Indonesia and a few other tropical places like New Caledonia and also Philippines are what we call the laterate ore. That's pretty much, perhaps we can say it's a, a lower grade materials. Now to process this, it takes a little bit more effort than those that exist in other places like Canada and Russia. Now in Indonesia, the laterate ore can be processed into two main pathways, so to say. The first one is called the pyrometallurgy using the smelters. And the second one is called the hydrometallurgy process, which ends up with the acid processing. Now these ends up on different products. Now to look a bit of a context, Indonesia's current export in the nickel is mostly dominated by the nickel pig iron. Nickel pig iron is a material that serves as a feed, feed through for the stainless steel production. So a good 80% to 90% of Indonesia's current export is really based on the NPI. Now, going forward, the intent is to move this into a more battery-related metals. And that's really involving a lot of new technologies. New as in relative terms is that sometimes they're using what we call the pressure acid leaching. This is more commonly known as the HPAL. So what it does is basically processing this low-grade nickel resources by acid leaching so that it can become pre-battery materials. Because for the battery materials, the material output that is needed is different from those for the stainless steel sector. So there are two pathways that can do it. In recent five years, 
people can either choose to run the HPAL process or they can try to convert the existing rotary kiln electric furnace into other kinds of materials. So without going into a lot of the weeds, so in a sense is that there's a lot of technological developments that is about to shift the material products from the stainless steel towards the battery sector, because the battery sector will definitely going to grow at 20%, 30% annual growth in the next two decades. Yeah, we start to see actually some of the shifts in some of the transactions that we've been following. If we look at the Indonesian players in the nickel industry, who are now the major local and international players in the processing sector than what you've been observing right now in the markets? Sure. The growth has been very significant. You know, in the last five to 10 years, the growth, especially since the export ban has been very significant. Now on the processing side, there are too many companies. You know, most of them are Chinese companies. We can see anybody from Xinjiang related, Huayu and whatnot. And there's a lot of different kinds of pathways that they're pursuing. Those within the electric furnace side, which has been established for a long time in relative terms because they've been producing a lot of NPIs. At the same time, there's a lot of new HPAR projects that's coming online. There's at least three that's been running and there's plan for more, you know, more than five in the, in the coming future. A lot of Chinese companies have entered into the industrial park development kind of models. So there's a lot of new industrial park being developed in Indonesia. On the mining side, this is a combination of all the old people, you know, all, all the old companies and all the new companies as well. Now we have the same old companies like Valley and also Antam is a local companies as well as the Xinjiang related mining companies. It's worthwhile to note that a lot of the mining also involves smaller scale miners, which provide a lot of feed through for the industrial parks and the nickel processing. Now, there are plans to grow more on the downstream side of the processing. We've seen investors like CATL, LG planning to build their battery facilities, although plan seems to be going back and forth. What is interesting to note is that since the launch of the United States Inflation Reduction Act last year, it somehow rattled the cages a little bit because what the U.S. did was essentially they give more incentives for companies that invest in the U.S. side of the battery supply chain. So what it did is that it made a little bit of a complication for some companies, whether it's of Chinese origin or whether it's of South Korean origin, where they are a bit worried that they may have some trouble to enter the U.S. market. So we're seeing some discussions and some developments where companies like Ford just going straight into Indonesia. And this development, I think going forward, will become more pronounced because at the end of the day, being Indonesia is one of the largest nickel reserves, I think going forward, there's going to be more investments and hopefully it's going to be more balanced out, you know, like the existing Chinese as well as other companies, whether it's from South Korea, Japan, or even from the United States and the Europe. One of your findings in your article indicates that three-fourths of the EVs sold in Indonesia do not use nickel in their battery chemistry. Can you explain what are the main battery chemistries used for four-wheelers and two-wheelers in Indonesia, and why nickel batteries are not dominant in the Indonesian market? This is interesting. Initially, everybody keep on talking about nickel-based batteries, right? But in the last five years, there's a lot of developments of looking for alternatives. And the LFP, so the iron-based battery, surfaced quite quickly in the last, in the recent you know, four to six years. And what happened was that the LFP batteries gained traction because of multiple advantages. It's cheaper, that's one. 
Secondly, it's also safer and then it has a longer cycle life for recharging and discharging as well. There is a disadvantage is that it's heavier. Now this for critical applications, like if you're using it on a vehicle with a long range target, it's going to be difficult because you're going to have a heavier vehicle. Now what happened is that Indonesia seems to be replicating what's happened in Chinese market. To give an anecdote is that in 2021, half of Tesla Q1 productions of their new cars are using LFP batteries. Some of these are responding to the changing and fluctuating market in the mineral prices. So they're kind of like, okay, let's have a second pathways. And this is gaining traction quite a bit, especially in Chinese market. Indonesia being that most of the vehicles are in the class of the medium and the lower range, you know, in terms of pricing, you're looking at below 20,000 US dollar, for example, the price becomes a significant factor. So the LFP has been a significant push into the Indonesian market. Compounded to that is that Chinese companies such as Wuling, you know, entered Indonesia and they bring all these lower priced batteries into their vehicles. Now, we still don't know what's going to happen in the next few years, but this EV boom, if I would say it's a boom, only takes place about one to two years. So it's not what we're looking at. is not really an exact trend of what's going to happen moving forward, but given the price sensitivity, it would not be surprising to see that LFE will dominate the Indonesian market and also the Southeast Asia. One complication for Indonesia, just to add, is that this may come as a bit of an incoherence in the political narrative, because the story of Indonesia's nickel development was supposed to be about EV. But now most of the EV doesn't use a nickel. So this may cause a bit of a, I would guess, a bit of a political confusion in the, in the coming year. And, and let's see how that's going to evolve. One point I want also to discuss is if you could explain to us what is the environment dilemma that we're facing when coming to mining and processing nickel in Indonesia? Because it's something that we are asking ourselves quite often, whether we should help the supply of critical mineral for the energy transition, but mining and processing nickel in Indonesia has some environmental costs. This is indeed an interesting one because... I think that the transition toward electric vehicles is unstoppable. As in 2022, I think last year, is about 15% or so of global sales on cars are electric. So that's going to potentially grow. The complications for the mineral producing countries like Indonesia is the processing, as you mentioned. Let's break it down into at least three components. The first one is on the mining side. And the second component is about the emission side and also about the other implications. On the mining sides, there is a lot of challenges in terms of keeping proper environmental standards. Indonesia ramped up the capacity of our mining significantly. And anybody who is involved in a quick ramp up would know there's a lot of challenge, whether we talk about permitting, whether we talk about, you know, how do you distance yourself from the shoreline and so forth. So there's a lot of complications on the mining side. Now, if we look into the processing side, nearly all nickel production will involve quite a lot of energy intensive process. And a lot of opposition will come from the fact that most of this, if not all today, will be powered by coal power. In Indonesia, like for example, in the Morowali Industrial Park, one of the most prominent nickel processing facility, we're looking at multi-gigawatts of coal power capacity. Of course, this makes the discussion about EV becomes complicated because on one hand, you know, people in China, in EU and the US want to say EV is green. On the other hand, you see the repercussions of having the high emissions in countries like Indonesia. So there's, all, of course, there's the life cycle discussion of how big is emissions that can be handled. It is expected and it is hoped that this will improve in the future, 
but we also need to take into account that it's not easy to create any kind of smelting with variable renewable energy. We have heard plans for some companies to install a few hundred megawatts of solar PV, for example. But probably it can complement. Whether it can displace, it's going to be difficult, unless you've got, for example, a good big hydro resource that can run to power electric furnaces. So that's uh, on, the, you know, on the emission side and the processing. Now, one thing that adds a bit of complexity is when we do the asset leaching process is that there is a lot of waste materials. And a lot of these contains quite a lot of pollutants. So how to deal with the tailing will become another complication. Now for, for clarity, the HPAR process has a lower carbon emissions than the electric furnaces. But the complication would then comes into the, how do we deal with the acid, you know, acid leached um, tailings and so forth. So all of these will become a critical factor going forward. I do think at least it's partially addressable and it needs to begin with all the parties that's involved. Number one is gonna be the government because in the end, they're the one that's giving permit away. Number two is gonna be the producers. And we expect that moving forward, producers will become much more responsible in how they source their materials. And number three is the users. The users as in the final car producing companies. So it is hope that the involvement of companies like Ford, European companies, and even Chinese companies with a higher standard can push the standards to become better in the future. Because the complication is, is that we're going to produce a lot of nickel, but countries like Indonesia will get a lot of the pollutions, a lot of the complication environments and socials, but we don't adopt a lot of EV if we don't go fast enough. And I think we cover quite a fair bit of ground on the nickel industry per se. So now I'd like to move to the electrification of Indonesian roads. So could you give us, to start with, an introduction of the state of the electrification of Indonesian roads, whether it's for four-wheelers or two-wheelers, and then maybe compare this with other countries and also explain why electrification of the road transportation is so critical for Indonesia's energy transition and reduction of carbon footprint. Sure. The electrification, we're still on a very, very early stage. You know, probably in Southeast Asia, in terms of two-wheeler market, we're still behind Vietnam, who's been adopting quite significant share of electric uh, two-wheelers. In terms of four-wheelers, Indonesia has a bit close tie with Thailand. Now, if we talk about why is it important, it's important at least on two factors. Number one is that in terms of emissions, the transport sector is actually the biggest sector that's contributing emissions in Indonesia. It is even bigger than the industries. So it is quite significant, especially in our archipelagic kind of state. So there's a lot of emissions coming from the transport that will need to be addressed. At a second level is that Indonesia imports a lot of oil. And like many countries such as India and China, this becoming quite a complication. Right now, more than half of Indonesia's oil consumption is imported. And this will probably grow into 70 to 80% in the coming decade. So unless there is a step change in how to deal with this, because in the end, it will slowly destabilize, you know, the stability of the economics as well and the currency. So the role of EV is important on multiple layers. So it's important on the decarbonizations. It's important in terms of reducing oil imports. But one other thing is that it's important to make sure that the nickel that Indonesia produced does end up into becoming a leverage. Because the worry is that what tends to happen is that the nickel industry develops, you know, and the EV industry develop overseas, but the one in Indonesia doesn't develop, which pose another risk for the country. 
So in your report, you warned that the lack of investment in EV production from the legacy automakers could hinder the EV development in Indonesia. So could you describe who these legacy automakers are and why you have this concern? And second, maybe briefly introduce the new market entrant. The existing players are mostly Japanese industrial related. Companies like Toyota, Suzuki, Daihatsu, and so forth combined, the top five companies controls about 92, 93% of the market share in the four wheelers. If we go to the two wheeler side, 96 to 99% is dominated by two to three Japanese companies, you know, namely Honda, Kawasaki, and Suzuki. So it's a very well entrenched industry, but this is expected, right? I mean, these companies has had a long relationship with Southeast Asian countries, including Indonesia as their production base. The complications in Indonesia, at least, is that we have quite a significant excess capacity of the existing internal combustion engine car and two-wheeler productions. The capacity excess is anywhere between 35 to 50%. And what worries me is that the government seems to be focusing mostly of their attention just on the EV side without any mention of what are we going to do with the existing industry players. And it is important that in Indonesia, at least, it is important to shift the attention that this is well-established existing industries. In terms of contribution to the economy, it's significant. It comprises about 3.x percent of the industrial production GDP. It comprises nearly 4% of industries export in Indonesia. So these are gigantic sectors in terms of GDP contribution and export. And it is strange to see that the government of Indonesia was talking mostly about EV adoption while completely dismissing the fact that these companies, mostly you know, between five to eight companies, literally have no plan to electrify their fleet. Because as some of us may be familiar is that the Japanese may have a different views on how they see the electric transition. You know, they may have a lot of merit But what I'm trying to highlight is that there is a disconnect in narrations on what's happening on the ground. So when people say on Monday, you know, we're going to develop the nickel for EV, right? But nobody seems to mention what are we going to do with the existing capacity. So it's really about we need to pay attention to both sides because it's impossible to displace a 96% market share solely by giving a few incentives to get people to buy electric vehicles. This is a very interesting point, and I think we understand better now why Indonesia's world transportation is so intrinsically linked to the Japanese players. Maybe if you focus a bit more on these Japanese players, could you present the choices that these players have made regarding decarbonizing road transportation, you know, especially about the use of hybrid and fuel cells in the vehicles, and how now these choices are actually impacting Indonesia via their presence in this market. So the Japanese is leaning heavily toward the hybrid vehicle, which is a combination of electric motors with a regular ice combustion engine. And this has a lot of positive impacts, to be frank, right? I mean, if Indonesia can adopt a lot of hybrid, it can bring some improvement in terms of reducing emissions and reducing oil imports. But the question I think we need to ask is that hybrid is not new. It's been around for 20, 20 plus years, but globally, the uptake is really concentrated on a few regions, mainly in the United States, in Japan, and a few countries. So the question is really, 
what's going to be different this time? Because hybrid cars are usually a bit more expensive and it's also a bit more complicated because you have both the engines and also the motors to be addressed in maintenance and also on the purchase price. The question is really to be asking, why hasn't hybrid took off in the last 20 years and what will be different this time? Especially when we're dealing with market with price sensitive, like Indonesia and Southeast Asia. Now, the electric vehicles, if we look at the BEV, they do have some weaknesses as we know today. At least number one, it's still on parity a bit more expensive anywhere between 20 to 30 to 40% more expensive today. But the trend is clear is that the adoption rate is at the scale of millions, while the others are at the scale of thousands. If I'm jumping topic a little bit, for example, Japan is also putting a bet on the hydrogen fuel cell cars. It has been around since the 1997. I believe the first release of the car has always been more than a decade long. And the total population of fuel cell car globally is somewhere between 40 to 50,000. That's the cumulative population in the entire world. Now, we need to be critical in seeing what's the learning curve that's possible when you have something that's only adopted a thousand vehicle a year versus those that's been selling at anywhere between one to 10 million a year. So these are the comparison. So on hybrid, if it can bring benefits, if it can be brought into the market with sufficient price, it can displace a lot of the conventional eyes and it can have a lot of benefits. But the critical question remains, it has been around for 20 years, can we get it to the market at the right price? And what is the learning curve that we're gonna see in the next you know, one, five to 10 years? Can it actually drop the price? Because we're seeing the different trend on the battery electric vehicles, because with the large adoption, a lot of innovations that's coming in across many countries, although mostly China, this will likely be related to the decrease in price in the future. So in short, the hybrid is beneficial, but there's still a lot of question mark of how beneficial it will be. We do know that the European Union that was previously promoting a lot of hybrids right now is scaling back their supports because they don't actually believe that the emissions reduction are that significant. Countries like Southeast Asia obviously will be different, but as long as hybrid cannot enter the right price parity, I think it will be difficult for it to be adopted in Southeast Asia. That's an interesting point. So to develop EV industry in Indonesia and to maximize the benefits of countries' oil reserves and build a comprehensive value chain, I think it's very essential that supportive government policies should be in place. So can you introduce the policies that the Indonesian government has put in place currently to foster the electrification of the country's roads? Right now, it's still fairly limited. Just within the last three months, the government released an incentive program for two-wheelers. I think about 30% of purchase price, which is quite a significant amount, but it has some limitations on who can buy and who can apply to it. In terms of four-wheelers, the government released some discount on the taxation, a relaxation of going from 11% VAT going to 1%. So that's also significant. But the price difference are still quite large. And I think that's something that the government will also need to address going, going forward. There have been other incentives in terms of building recharging facilities on the road and toll road, but those are still very limited. So in terms of incentives, really most of the incentives have been going onto the upstream to the downstream nickel processing. So the government have been using the electric vehicle narrative 
to give a lot of taxation, relaxations, you know, give tax holidays, export levy free and whatnot to the upstream, to the midstream processing. And this is why coming back to my earlier point is that if Indonesia doesn't use a lot of nickel on its EV, I'm sure a lot of people will be asking questions because then where's all those benefits for the upstream processing will end up. And maybe to conclude, if you had three policy advice regarding downstreaming the nickel industry and fostering the EV adoption, what would be your top three policy advice for Indonesia? In terms of electric vehicles, number one, I think the current incentive plan will need to be much more sophisticated. Because right now what we did was practically giving a flat incentive for all kinds of vehicles. So it's practically saying, we'll give you a few hundred dollars if you buy any electric motorcycles. That doesn't endorse any kinds of progression in the market. Because what we need to remember in Indonesia is that incentives need to be made in a progressive fashion. You know, it needs to incentivize, for example, longer driving range so that it can answer questions that the users usually have doubt about shifting from the ICE vehicle into the electric vehicle. So instead of a giving of a flat rate, it should be progressed based on technologies. You know, any particular features need to be incentivized, whether it's distance, safety, whether it's something else. Because what Indonesia needs to be careful is that at this early process, we have the possibility of building trust or destroying trust from the users. You know, if we're going to start incentivizing any random electric two-wheelers that use, for example, an old-type lead-acid batteries that's no longer used in other countries, Indonesia will become a dumping ground of technologies. So when technologies are no longer used in China or India, it's going to end up in Indonesian shore, it's going to be incentivized, and it's going to destroy the consumer market confidence. So that's one, about the sophistication, about the incentive. Number two, it's very important to look at the nickel-related processing. Indonesia has always claimed a great leverage about its nickel, but so far the concerns about the environmental and social implications still runs very strong. And I believe that this will need to be addressed. How it needs to be addressed, it will need to involve all the parties involved, whether it's the car manufacturers, the intermediary processing, and especially the government as well. Because the complexity is that if Indonesia keep on saying, well, we own a third or 40% of the world's nickel, but at the same time, it doesn't have the leverage, or at least it seems it allows anything to go. You know, whether it's dumping tailings, whether it's other kinds of processing or pollution. And this will need to be addressed for Indonesia to have a long-term competitiveness, whether it's on the export market, and also to gain the public trust on the ground. Lastly is that it is impossible to adopt EV only looking at the EVs. Um, what tends to happen right now in Indonesia is that the EV adoption is focusing solely on incentives for the EV sector. If we look at what's happening in other countries, whether it's China, whether it's India, whether it's Europe, it's always going to be combined with disincentives for the other parts. Whether it's about limiting the amount of emissions coming from the combustion engines, whether about limiting the access of purchasing new combustion engine cars and so forth. So right now, this has not been explored yet. And I believe that in order for Indonesia to seriously adopt EV, it is impossible to turn a blind eye on these topics, is that we need to be able to address all the other aspects, whether it's fuel economy, emission standards, or restriction on other sides of the vehicle market. Thank you for coming on the show, Potra. It was really insightful. Thanks so much. 
Thank you, Ben and you.